This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to, to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor and Senior Economist to WisdomTree, Jeremy Siegel. We're going to have a very interesting show today. Uh, our show is not tied to the offers of any investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. Professor, we had Thanksgiving week off, but a lot of data, a lot of Fed talk. You've got some more uh, data on inflation as you look into the closing month of the year. How are you thinking about all the data and what you're hearing from the Fed? It's what we've been saying. I said November was going to be good, and wow, it was one of the best Novembers we ever had. Um, we um, uh, Let me summarize. The, the reports are economic, real economic reports are soft, but not disastrous by any means. Um, current estimates of GDP for this quarter um, are one and a half to two. Um, you know, all this hullabaloo about, you know, 5.2 for the third quarter. I don't know why everyone's so excited about what happened in uh, in July and August. Um, we're looking forward here. Uh, and, and that's one and a half to two is not bad. Now, it depends on holiday sales. We'll see how they're going. Um, but and the inflation debt is all coming in at or slightly below expectations, which is good. Oil is staying down. Um, all this is feeding into a positive equity uh, orientation. Uh, to boot, we uh, you know just had Powell uh, give a talk. Where um, the Powell one the Powell Fed um, does not ever want to surprise the market. It knows the market expects no increase in December. Um, and um, uh, it, in other words, if he was thinking about it. He would have said it uh, today um, on Friday. And the fact that he didn't say it um, means there is no increase. He is definitely not. So there's virtually nothing uh, that can happen given increase. Um, we actually have uh, December Fed Funds futures at 533, exactly what Fed Funds is at right now. Um, and, of course, he says we're data dependent on, on, on that. Again, that's good. The market liked that. The bonds rallied and are back down to that four and a quarter basis uh, points uh, that we had. Um, now, as far as a lot of people are talking about um, uh, what's happening uh, a year from now um, uh, on the Fed Funds future, I'm looking at a 402 now, which is a full five cut, five twenty-five basis points cuts now. First of all, let me warn you, as I've said many times, that is not an unbiased estimate of what uh, the market thinks is going to happen. Um, It is biased towards uh, being lower because if a crisis happens, uh, you know, Powell will lower the rate. And therefore, uh, these Fed Funds futures serve as a negative beta good hedge against um, risk assets. I would estimate a year out. We're talking about maybe 25 basis points, maybe 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 a slightly more on that risk hedge. So we're talking about between three and four. And I think that that will be realized. Uh, I do see a slowdown in the economy. Um, the only risk I see for risk assets is the Fed is too slow on the downside. The more flexible he is, if he's flexible, we'll move on the downside. I don't care if the if the economy you know slows to zero growth in uh, first and second quarter, if he's moving that rate down, we will have a good year in 2024. Um, as I said, outside of the tech sector, uh, I think the market is still very, very defensive. We've had some rally in small caps and mid caps, but it has been muted um, so far. So I um, uh, I think this is why we're taking, you know, and technicals look very, very good. You know, I, I, I think I think the Dow is is poised to take out its all-time high. It's less than 5% away as it crosses uh, 36,000. Um, and um, uh, the S&P may be soon to follow. I'm not saying by the end of this year, 
uh, but certainly early uh, in 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 uh, in, in uh, uh, January. If we pushed you to when you think they might have the first cut, you said they should be talking about it in January and March. When do you? If I push you, when when will the first cut occur? Uh-huh. That depends on how weak the data is, actually, and uh, you know whether inflation continues to come down. Uh, I think they should be talking about it now. Although I I think uh, uh, let, let's take a look at some very interesting facts. Uh, less than three months ago, in the September meeting. A majority of FOMC uh, members believed there was going to be one more increase, and that was going to be in December. Well, now it's off the table. So, you know, everyone's going to be uh, a a Twitter with uh, what the dot plot is going to show on December 13th Fed meeting as, oh, my God, this is what they think they think and think. Well, look at how good they are at predicting. They couldn't even predict uh, three months in advance. Nonetheless, what rate is going to be there by the end of the year? Now, what I think is that we're going to have a slowdown, and we're going to have GDP that's going to be in in the one percent area, plus or minus, with a slowdown in inflation, um, and with some risks that um, the slowdown could accelerate. Uh, and being a political uh, election year, the political pressure on him to lower is going to be high. I mean, just yeah. think about it. No one is prepared now for a rise in rates. We, we see oil down, gasoline, one of the biggest decreases. Liza, welcome to Sirius. Thank you. Good morning, Jeremy. Well, thanks for joining us on the show. We're going to have a, a really interesting discussion on what's happening between the U.S. and China. You have a lot of interesting views from your seat at scsp.ai. We'll talk about what that is. But let's just start with you had this recent meeting between President Biden and uh, in, in China's leader, um, Xi, uh, he came over. What, what do you take from the recent meeting? What's the status of the relationship? What's your take on all the current dynamics? Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, the administration going into the meeting set the bar pretty low, kind of projecting that their expectations were low for this. And so I think they kind of stepped over that bar and got a few kind of tactical stabilization things out of the meeting. But it does not represent any kind of strategic um, rapprochement or U.S.-China kind of dialing down of tensions permanently. I think it's quite tactical and short term. So we can kind of get into the details of of the deliverables that came out of the meeting. But overall, I'd say it sort of just put a floor on how bad the relations had gotten. President Xi and Biden hadn't met or talked for an entire year since last year in Bali, Indonesia. And so that's really quite a long time for the leaders of uh, two of the most important countries in the world not to talk. And so they really just needed to do that. Now, what, was there anything tangible that came as a takeaway from this? They, they had a few headlines that came. Um, you know, People are worried about the overall relationship. We talk about the hot button issues for next year, Taiwan being one of them. But what do you think is... What came out of the meeting? Yeah, there were a few deliverables. I think uh, one was the restoration of military to military dialogue. So what does that mean? It really just means that they agreed that they were going to talk about the military relationship. So there's growing tension around the Taiwan Strait. Um, the Chinese are kind of increasing their aggressive activity around Taiwan. Um, the U.S. military, of course, operates there. And the two militaries, the U.S. and Chinese military, haven't been talking. So they um, have had in the past these regular dialogue channels where they can meet and kind of exchange, um, you know, talk about their intentions and things like that. And that hadn't been happened, interestingly, because the Chinese had canceled these regularly scheduled meetings um, a number of months ago when Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan. In retaliation, the Chinese said, OK, we're, we're going to cancel these talks. So at the meeting in California, they agreed to restart those talks. So that's not any kind of tangible dialing back of our military presence in Asia. It's it's not any dialing back of China's uh, military aggression there. It really is just an agreement to talk. And then there were a couple other things. Um, they agreed to restart cooperation on um, on counter narcotics. There's a lot of precursors to fentanyl coming out of China, flowing into the United States, often through Mexico. Um, so we'll see what comes out of that. Um, in the past, the Chinese have made these agreements. And then, um, you know, whenever they get um, 
irritated with us about some unrelated issue, then they say, okay, that's it, we're stopping. So this might not last that long, but it's kind of, again, a, a tactical step in the right direction. You know, from a, I think about it all from a market's implication and what ha- what does this all mean for investments in China, the investments in Asia, investments in emerging markets? I mean, I've seen people trying to de-risk some of the China portfolios, lowering exposure, looking at other strategic partners like Japan, like India as a source of the flows that are coming out of China. But when you think about, again, the, the election next year as one of the key risk points, um, do you how do you see that? Uh, and how does that play into the long-term relationship? Is there extra risk that comes around the election next year? Yeah, to go back to your point about what does the summit mean for the markets, really just to sum it up, I would say not much. So um, there's a lot of really big strategic and structural factors that are ongoing regardless of what happened at the summit. Again, they made these kind of small tactical agreements to start talking or working together on some some items. But the big things that are you're seeing affecting the markets like uh, foreign direct investment is flowing out of China this year faster than it is flowing into China. So FDI into China is at its lowest level, I think, in in decades, actually. Um, that's not going to change based on the results of the meeting. Um, again, the tensions where you see the tail risk of a Taiwan contingency, something kind of happening in the Taiwan Strait, I think the risks there are growing and, and the results of the summit um, don't really change that at a fundamental level. And then on elections, yeah, I mean, next year, 2024 is a really big year for elections, not just in the United States, but also in Taiwan. In January, they're holding their next election. Beijing is watching those very closely. And so um, the Biden administration did want to sit down and talk with Xi before that time to try to, again, set a floor on things, um, because that will be quite tense. Well, let's bring this a little bit to what SCSP focuses on. So tell us a little bit about your origin story as as a group, what its mission is, what you're focused on day to day, how it all ties into this China US uh, relationship. Yeah, so at SCSP, we see technology and in emerging technology in particular at the center of this contest, this rivalry and competition between the United States and China. Um, we've been around for a couple of years and uh, we have kind of a, a near-term history and a long-term history. So going back um, in the near term, um, so, uh, there, there was an organization, the National Security Commission on AI, which was set up by Congress a few years back to look at artificial intelligence and what it meant for our national security and our national competitiveness. And so that group, which was uh, chaired by Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Alphabet, um, they really took a look at AI and made a number of recommendations to Congress and the executive branch, how does a nation need to come up with policies and investments so that we stay ahead in AI and can use this appropriately for our national security and our economy? Uh, when they completed that work, um, Eric and um, my now boss, Ili Bayraktari, the CEO of SESP, uh, were both working on that commission and they said, what's next? Uh, government commissions intentionally are set up just for a couple of years, usually. They do their work and then they stop. They're not perpetual organizations. Um, so they said, what's next? They wanted to continue this work, but broaden it, not just to look at AI, but other emerging technologies, and then pivot from a government role to a, a non-government. So we're a private foundation, 501c3, and we are our, our core mission is to make America more competitive for an age when emerging technology is shaping everything about our lives and strategic competition with China. Um, is becoming ever more relevant to everything we do. Yeah, AI, you can't escape every headline being focused around AI. Uh, this morning, we're, we're talking on Thursday morning, and you have Elon Musk last night with the Andrew Ross Sorkin at the Deal Book Conference. And, you know, the, everybody's focusing on this open AI headlines, and, and, you know, we're all reading it. But Elon, you know, there are questions of why was Sam fired? Why did Ilya, his key recruit that Elon brought over to open AI, want to fire Sam? And the question, and people haven't got a straight answer. And uh, Elon's like, well, either there's something very serious and we should know about it. Uh, or it wasn't serious. The board at OpenAI should be fired, and so it's a it's a quite interesting dynamic. Um, in in this relationship between the U.S. and China on AI, 
we've tried to do certain things to make it harder for the competition. I think in some of the, the policies, maybe you could say what policies the U.S. have done and what you're focused on what they should do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To everything you were saying before, uh, we have entered the age of AI. So for many years, for decades even, scientists, technologists were saying, oh, AI is coming, it's coming. And and we hadn't quite gotten to that moment. And so we see about a year ago when you saw, you know, chat GPT come out into the, into the public sphere and all these massive developments in generative AI that really ushered in this age of artificial intelligence that we're living in now. So yes, now it's in all the headlines. It's at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Everyone's talking about it. Um, we're in living through this really incredible and historic moment when AI is coming into all of our lives. You can't escape it. Um, there brings a lot of opportunity, a lot of risk, but uh, we really have to kind of get get a handle on this as a nation. Um, yeah, on, on, on policies, I think um, the United States government, um, you know, about a year ago, uh, started pursuing some some policies to strengthen our export controls uh, with an aim to say so. So in many cases, they were seeing that the Chinese military was actually benefiting from access to U.S. semiconductors and using U.S. chips, high end chips to develop things like models to test hypersonic missiles or other military technologies. And they said, uh, you know, American uh, technology shouldn't be contributing to developing military competitor uh, military technology for our most important geostrategic rival, um, and so they started tightening up export control policies. And then, just again, about a month ago in October, um, they they had done a review and found some loopholes in those, and so they they tightened those up. So we can go more into the details if if that's of interest to your um, listeners, but. Um, when you talk about microelectronics and semiconductors and things of that nature in Washington, that's usually where people's minds go is to the export controls and are they working? Do we need to do more? How is China reacting? That sort of thing. Uh, I think if we get it from this investment perspective and what are the things that they've tried to do, you know, in terms of sanctions on on companies, whether they made it harder. Um, we, you and I talked in the past about, you know, the some of the people being very unhappy with some of the private companies that were going to fund these technologies and what are they going to try to restrict investments or so they I think there was been action on restricting some of the big private companies saw so like Sequoia is one of these big firms that was right. launching funds and, and going after AI and they, they're actually making that harder from what I understand but right. they haven't hit the public companies who are operating in that space yeah, yeah. Where do you, what do you think is the status of those regulations? Will it get broader to the public markets? What do you think? Yes. Yeah. A couple of months ago, the Biden administration published a executive order on outbound investment screening. So, you know, this sounds really technical, but really what it means is what you're saying is in certain um, dual use technologies, the U.S. government is saying we don't want American investors investing in Chinese development of these critical dual use technologies in ways that can be used for the military. So the ones they called out in that EO were semiconductors, um, quantum and artificial intelligence. Um, so they they put out what's called an interim rule or rather, you know, their uh, 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 request for comment. So basically kind of a draft regulation where they've been inviting public comment to say, what is the exact scope of what American investors can and cannot do? So the final rule isn't out yet. But of course, um, with something like artificial intelligence, it's not just one thing. It's a very broad category. And the government is clearly... Uh, you know, kind of struggling to define exactly what's going to be restricted and what's not. So what's okay for American investors to bring their money over to China and help a Chinese AI company develop some kind of new app or new uh, technology of some type? It's still kind of uh, to be defined. So the, the kind of um, risky area is spreading. The administration talks about something they call a, th their policy is a small garden high fence. So the idea is we're just going to focus on restricting investments or restricting technology transfer in this very small list of technologies that have 
military or national security implications. But because nowadays, many of these technologies are dual use. I mean, AI, when it's developed, it could go to military use or it could just as easily go to commercial use. And the nature of the technology when it's been developed doesn't determine one way or the other. The same way with these, you know, high-end AI chips, these GPUs that companies like NVIDIA um, develop, these, you know, amazing technology that could be used for military or commercial use. So it's really quite a challenging policy problem that the government is trying to work through. But I suspect that the um, the list of technologies and, and categories that are restricted or problematic is going to just kind of keep keep growing because of the nature of dual use technology. We're talking with Liza Tobin from SCSP.ai about their views on all things happening China US. Liza, this is this this year has been the year of AI and sort of magnificent seven stocks in the US led by all these big tech companies. NVIDIA, the heart of the semiconductors powering this AI revolution, all our big tech companies who are benefiting from it. And then you got China's big tech companies who've been sort of at the center place too in many ways, but they haven't been performing. And I think part of it is this tension and there's this fear of what's going to happen. And we had President Xi crack down on all of his companies himself, yet alone the US trying to crack down on them. But this NVIDIA and semiconductors play, you know, since that's the heart of the chips, what they need, there's all sorts of interesting questions about the companies that could get impacted by the ultimate forms of this executive order. It's a very interesting question. But let me go back to like a another direct question on other companies in the news tied to just the technology and and things. People talking about TikTok as one of these things. I think about it as a parent who have young daughters who go on TikTok. Um and actually, this was a conversation at Elon's interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin last night was, you know, people were accusing him of being anti-Semitic uh, in some of his tweets and posts. And and they were talking about TikTok. And he said, well, there's two billion Muslims in the world. What's the, the chance that TikTok is anti-Semitic is going to be much higher than because there's so many less Jews. And so the idea that it's going to get out there from their AI algorithms, putting together the content. It's not necessarily China, but it's the algorithm and the AI that's feeding the more anti-Semitic content. Is that now a risk with TikTok spreading US views? You got a billion people over in, in around the world that, that could spread messages that are against US interests. Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. I certainly don't have TikTok on my phone and I've got a, a an 11 year old and a 14 year old at home and, and they do not use TikTok. How and, have you banned uh, it at home? How, we were talking about this with my friend group about how do we ban it amongst our kids so, without creating a rebellion? Um, my 14 year old has persuaded me to pay him for each year that he stays off social media. So we're going to agree on how much that sum is, but if he can get, you know, each year on his birthday that he's off off social media to include TikTok of course, but um no, they they are aware of of the dangers of social media and in particular TikTok. I mean, what's different? I think, you know, there's been a, a national conversation about social media and the effects on youth broadly with all the different apps. Uh, but I think TikTok presents uh, a special problem at, at the national level. Um, you know, this this app is controlled by a company that's headquartered in the People's Republic of China. Um, this is not a rule of law democratic nation where you at least have some transparency, some accountability, a system of rule of law um, where, you know, the courts and the media can kind of check what's going on. Um, none of those things apply in China. And so you have and the way that the Chinese Communist Party um uses technology is to uh, promote their values and to exert social control over their population. So for years, they were just doing it within China, you know, surveilling and controlling and monitoring their population. Um, and so we could kind of look at that from afar and say, well, they can do what they want in China. Why does it matter to us? But now that, you know, you know, uh, tens and hundreds of millions of Americans and people around the world are reliant on these apps uh, made in China, controlled by China. It really does become a problem because they can influence the algorithms that shape the news that comes through there. So, you know, uh, wanting to, uh, for example, uh, make sure Americans see only the Chinese Communist 
Party's view of what's going on in the genocide in Xinjiang and downplaying um, news that shows any other views. So it's a growing problem. Um, again, Congress and the administration has really struggled to get a hold on this and find ways that work within our democratic system to get a hold on this. So it's really an unresolved problem. They, they seem to get away with banning all of our technology over there. But then when we try to ban their technology over here, it gets this whole level of different, yeah. like, oh, we would never do that because we like to just be a very free-minded, let people choose what they want to do type system. Right. Do you think we should be banning TikTok here? You have at uh, home. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, we don't, we, TikTok is a huge problem. It's absolutely, um, yeah, I think it should be banned. Um, the problem, as you point out, is it's non-reciprocal. So Google, Facebook, Meta, um, all these things, they, they're not, the New York Times, it's not able to operate in China. And so it's really, it's not fair kind of from a ordinary layperson's perspective. Why are they able to sell into the American market, the biggest and most important consumer market in the world? And yet we're not able to access 1.4 billion Chinese uh, consumers. So just from a basic economic fairness and reciprocity standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and then from a values perspective, it, it also poses a problem. Yeah, there's some technical reasons why Congress hasn't been able to ban it yet. It has to do with freedom of speech concerns. And so, of course, that's super important, fundamental um, Bill of Rights concerns about, you know, uh, Americans' reliance on this as a, as a source of data and news, uh, where it does get harder for the government to ban it. So con Congress is looking at this and, it, and they may have to pass new legislation in order to deal with the problem. And I'll I'll point out, too, that TikTok isn't the only problem. So I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's a number of other apps that are uh, controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, Temu, Shine, uh, Xi'an, um, and a few others. And so, you know, TikTok is sort of just just the beginning. Okay, well, that hit up another personal note because I right, said so this week, uh, PDD, Pinduoduo, is the company behind Temu, which just reported earnings. Mm. It was up 20% on the earnings news, blockbuster earnings growth. My... Uh, Mother-in-law has been a big consumer on Timu uh, empowering the stock higher. Um, so what do you think? Is that another, is that, is, are these shopping apps as much of a problem as things like TikTok? This represents, I think, a really interesting change in the last couple of years. You know, I used to work um, years ago at the CIA as an analyst of China and, you know, kind of in the, in the, Mid, two th mid 2000s, kind of 2015, 2016, the views started to change. So before that, there was this assumption that, oh, the innovation happens in the United States. We design the technology and it's just manufactured in China. They can't innovate, um, which was, you know, obviously has proved to be wrong. They're, they're quite good at innovating. And so in the last, you know, five or 10 years, it's become clear to Americans that China has not only caught up with, they're actually starting to surpass the United States in some technologies. And you've seen this with their movement from hardware to software. So they've already mastered building a lot of the hardware that goes into many of the electronics and other technologies. And then the last couple of years, they've had these these breakouts in software. So software used to be this area where Americans assumed we dominated and, and American firms are still really good at software. Uh, but clearly the Chinese have, have this figured out. And you see this in, in kind of the emergence of these apps that are coming into our ecosystem. And again, these companies aren't subject in China to the same kind of rule of law and checks and balances that American companies are here. I think about, is it a good investment? So it's now up 40% off the lows recently. Um, and you know, so, well, the growth is there. The question is they're selling things. They're trying to build a big customer base. So they're selling things maybe below cost, actually. They may be losing money to build the customer base. And then they're going to try to take sure. advantage of later. It's not the same as Amazon. You get it next day because it's coming from China. It might take a few weeks, but you get AirPods fake style AirPods for $12. Um, so people are buying it, right? Consumers want the cheap products. Right. But is there something nefarious going on? Is there something that if you're investing in this growth story that you have to worry that A, they're doing something with your data, B, the US is going to say, oh, this is now part of the AI story and we are no longer allowed to use Timo. 
Yeah, no, you touched on so many important things. So in terms of, you know, uh, what to watch from the policy standpoint, Congress and the administration are super concerned about these. But, you know, government is slow. Um, They make decisions slowly. They've been watching this problem for a couple of years and they're trying to come up with solutions. Um, But, you know, it takes a while for them to get their act together. Um, And so but they are laser focused on these issues, the issues of um, apps made and controlled by the PRC, the data flowing over these networks, our dependence on China for all of these critical technologies. So the other shoe hasn't dropped. I think um, in the course of the next several years, you're going to see the government sort of finally come together, get its act together and start issuing new regulations. So we'll kind of watch that space. Um you know, what's what's interesting is that, um, again, China is moving up the value added chain. And so they, uh, as you noted, that they often sell these things below cost. And so um, I've written about elsewhere what I call brute force economics, which is just kind of a term I came up with to summarize this approach to Um, knocking out foreign competition and starting to grow their global market share in key technology sectors through a mix of both unfair and kind of illegal means and legal means. So everything like you're saying from huge government subsidies that allow them to lower the prices before below market rates and basically undersell Mm -hmm. foreign competitors so make it so that it's impossible to compete with these low prices, as well as um, stealing intellectual property, um, cyber espionage, human-enabled espionage, um, market access restrictions. We talked before about kind of the the lack of reciprocity where they can sell into our market and we can't sell into their market for the same sector. So it's basically it's this long laundry list of some things that are you know technically legal and other things that are you know not legal or not compliant with the WTO. It's this whole basket of of challenges that then you take it and you put it at the scale of the second largest economy in the world, 1.4 billion consumers, this this massive juggernaut that is the Chinese economy, and you get this um, unprecedented policy problem that Washington is 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 grappling with. We're, we're talking with Liza Tobin from SCSP.ai. Liza, you made a very interesting reference as your background being in the CIA. And uh, we're talking or having been worked in the CIA before. And sort of you navigated different from the Republican to Democratic administrations. Maybe we have a different turn turnover next year with Biden. Is there a Republican that comes in? Is Biden continue? But talk through the policy transitions you've seen on this topic recently, and as you look ahead, anything you can you can glean from your experience in these two White Houses? Thanks, yeah, so I've been out of government for two years. My last role in the federal government was as China director at the National Security Council, and I, I started there in 2019 under the last administration, stayed on for the first year of the Biden administration, so literally lived through that transition from one administration to the next, a Republican to a Democrat administration. And what was, it was a unique experience, but uh, oftentimes you expect big, massive changes in foreign policies. And what I saw mainly was continuity, where regardless of this change in parties, change in administration, the new team team came in and largely moved forward with the China policies that the Trump administration had laid out. And I think, um, you know, despite the many other differences between those two administrations, I think what uh, Washington in general, both on Capitol Hill and in the White House, had recognized what was that we had gotten China wrong for many years. We had kind of assumed going all the way back to the early 2000s bringing China into the World Trade Organization, kind of increasing engagement, we assume that we can gradually change China to be more like us. Maybe they're not going to become a full-fledged democracy, but we can, uh, as they come into and integrate into the global economy, they'll kind of, these these Marxist-Leninist instincts will be kind of 
tamed um, and they'll become more of an open market driven economy. And, and we were sorely disappointed. So the Trump administration was the first to kind of pivot to that new uh, approach to China, which they called strategic competition. Um, and the Biden administration kind of agreed that that was the right change and they were going to kind of keep going in that direction. Um, so I got to live through that. And um, just as as, you know, kind of building on the, the seeds that were planted in the Trump administrations in terms of things like tariffs, export controls, investment screening, um, those kind of continued and were amplified in the Biden administration. Are there any things you would say Biden softened? Like, is, as you said, there was continuity in programs and that they actually kept a lot of the Trump policies in place. But it, did they soften anything? So the Biden administration put more of an emphasis on how do we work with, I would say, especially European allies and partners. President Biden is a a strong transatlanticist. He really values the relationship with Europe. And so I think the emphasis on that increase, we're, we're saying, well, you know, to to prevail, to win this competition over the long term with China in tech, America can't go it alone. We need our allies and partners and Europe, uh, the EU as a major economic system, you know, democracies and all that. We have to join forces. Neither of us can go it alone. So I think the Biden administration put more emphasis on that. Um, And then uh, you know, another accomplishment of the Biden administration was to to increase focus on on running faster at home. So big investments like the Chips and Science Act to restore domestic production of semiconductors, things like that, I think were um, kind of a, a change in emphasis. And well, that's the founding mission of SCSP.ai is to bring back American excellence in these areas. I've, I've heard some anecdotes about, you know, do we have the engineers to do build the chips? Can Intel do it here? Or they need to open a plant in Japan because Japan could actually have the engineers or or in Germany, they're talking about some different plants they're making. Do we have the people that it takes? That is one of the biggest issues that we have to solve as a nation. People, technical talent, um, so we have written a lot about this in our reports as kind of a theme that runs through. When we talk to companies, we often ask, you know, tech tech companies that are on the cutting edge trying to do new things and solve important problems. We like to ask them, what's your biggest obstacle to success or what's your obstacle to scale? What's holding you back? And the number one answer they give us most frequently is talent, uh, needing to hire enough talent with the right technical skills to build this stuff, to design this stuff. Um, So to address this, we have to be firing on all cylinders. We've got to fix our immigration system, keep attracting and retaining technical skills from abroad, but also improve STEM education, do workforce training so that, um, you know, workers can learn to use this stuff. So we've really got to be doing it, doing all of it. it. It does seem crazy. We train people, we kick them out. And, you know, immigration is this very contentious issue. And you talk about the open border policies and and you can see the risks of all that with all the stuff going on in the world today. There's some crazy risks of having just a wide open border policy. But for the top talent that you need, you also don't want to train them and then send them home. Absolutely. No, I've heard it said that we should be stapling a green card to every STEM graduate that graduates from an American university say, you know, make it easy for them to stay here. A lot of them want to stay here. I mean, right now with all of the, you know, the political crackdowns in China with Xi Jinping kind of clamping down on on tech firms and making the business environment in China more opaque and more um, more controlling. A lot of these um, these engineers in China want to come to the United States, but many of them, uh, you know, or from India, a lot of these these folks would love to work in the United States, but they're going to Canada or Australia or the UK instead because of our our immigration and, and visa system is is pretty tangled up. So so Congress really needs to address this. What can you guys do at SCSP.ai to change that? Are you uh, is that that's a top priority? I, ma- I imagine. Yeah, we 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 bring this up. Um, all the time in our briefings when we meet with uh, members of the U.S. government, Congress, uh, the administration, uh, you know, this is one of our our, our key recommendations is to uh, 
improve these pipelines for technical talent. Um, and, you know, th this comes up a lot. So I, I don't think there's anything more important than getting the people problem right in the United States. I 100% agree on that. That Absolutely. Um, as, as you think about our election season coming up, if, if you were to say there would be another transition, uh, and obviously don't know who, um, but obviously Trump is leading uh, all the polls. And would there be another shift? Would you think would you think Trump would make it much harder on China than Biden or anybody else? It's of course, it's really hard to say, but I think there is sort of as a base case. Um, there is a degree of continuity that's not going to be reversed because right now you have this dynamic where the United, you know, the U.S. government is kind of like an aircraft carrier. It's very slow to get this huge thing to turn. But once it's going in this direction, it's going to kind of keep going. <laughs> so I think it's it we're uh we are in what we call strategic competition with China. We're not going back to the era of engagement. So I think that's pretty sure uh, because as soon as the administration, whether it's Republican or, or Democrat, kind of starts to maybe slack off, then Congress is right there nipping at its heels and saying, you've got to be doing more on China. Um, so I think that dynamic is going to be there. Um, of course, uh, the Trump administration had a lot of emphasis on tariffs. So I think you would probably see more focus on that uh, with a return um, of a Trump administration. Um, but regardless, I think technology issues really are at the center. And so trying to get this this uh, these policies right of how do we deal with dual use technologies? What is this, you know, so-called small garden high fence? You're going to see this small garden get bigger and technologies like biotechnology, um, LIDAR, um, a number of other, you know, there's, uh, you know, smart ports, smart grids. I think the issue of uh, the way that our society is becoming ever more digitalized, where, you know, as you go to smart homes, smart cities, smart hospitals, smart grids, everything is being embedded in sensors. So you kind of can't get away from the fact that we're networked. And so it really matters that we're getting these technologies from a trusted source, a source where there's some transparency about the origin of these technologies. Are they safe? Are you going to be subject to, you know, maybe in a crisis or emergency, having your your systems, your your smart grid kind of temporarily shut down or come under an attack? Can we trust these systems? And so I think there's a growing recognition that we don't want to be reliant on a communist autocracy for these systems, not only the the building, the production of the systems, but the maintenance and the control and the design of them. So I think that that issue isn't going away because as AI changes everything about our lives, we're only becoming more reliant on these things. And so trust and security becomes ever more important. That's going to be an issue no matter who's in the White House. I think some of my conversations with you have instilled how the only thing that unites the Republicans and Democrats right now is this being anti-China. Questions of degrees, what are their policies? But you know, it's interesting. Just this, the only unifying thing that these people agree on is is this being tough on China stance. And who can be tougher on China? Maybe it's where they compete for. But I come back again as the investor, trying to think about what does this make me do as an asset allocator around the world to emerging markets has been one of the growth areas. China went from like 5% of emerging market portfolios up to 40% at the peak before they owned, did their own tech crackdown. Now we're down to around 30% of like a broad MSCI emerging markets index. Um, and I do wonder, you know, the the that executive order focused on the private companies and trying to not fund this military as you said, that there's technology that's dual use everywhere from consumers to this military. And, you know, you at the CIA, I think you were covering this state owned enterprises. And there's this question, is anybody not a state owned enterprise in China in some fashion? Maybe you could opine on that topic. But then will they actually make it? There's definitely people in Congress who would like us to not have our pensions invested in these Chinese companies. And well, MSA just says, hey, we're an index provider. And we're going to give you the market and China's part of the market. But should be people be more proactive there too? So wide ranging question there. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, 
When I think about investments strategy, it's about weighing risks versus rewards. When do the risks outweigh the rewards? And that's often a lot of guesswork. You try to apply research and an understanding of the facts, but eventually you have to make that decision. Do you think the risks are going to outweigh the rewards? And the trends are moving in that direction. In China, I like to think about kind of three categories of risks that I see increasing in China. One you kind of touched on, I call it sort of domestic compliance or regulatory risks. This, the way that um, the business environment is tightening and all of these new Chinese laws or revised Chinese laws, the foreign affairs law, the counter espionage law, data laws, all of these laws that are kind of forcing foreign companies to choose, are they going to follow the Chinese regulatory re regime or are they going to follow the regulatory and legal regime of the United States or wherever they're, they're coming from? And the Chinese Communist Party is basically holding a gun to their head and saying, if you're going to operate here, you've got to follow our rules and our laws. Um, and there's a lot of laws about data localization and country co companies that are really in limbo wondering, you know, is it legal to take this data out of China? Um, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so that's just making it harder for companies to operate there and know they're in the clear. Um, another big risk that I think needs to be understood, of course, is macroeconomic. Your listeners are probably well aware of, of how the Chinese economy is experiencing a long-term structural slowdown. Um, the population is now shrinking. Uh, they have a lot of debt burdens at the local government level. They're going through a real estate crisis. Real estate, of course, is the biggest driver of growth. There has been historically the biggest driver of GDP growth in China. Um, and now that's kind of falling off a cliff as they've sort of overbuilt the real estate sector and now they're, they're having a correction. Um, but I think another aspect of the, the macroeconomic risk is the policy choices. So for a long time, we've been waiting for China to shift to so-called consumption-driven growth and say, you know, give consumers more power, allow them to, you know, give them more government support on things like healthcare so they can actually go out and spend their money and unleash the the power of 1.4 billion consumers. And and the the Communist Party just hasn't done that. And I think it's becoming quite clear that Xi Jinping he doesn't believe in capitalism. This is kind of a capitalist idea that you empower the consumers. That's not Xi Jinping's worldview. He's running a massive economic experiment trying to prove that Marxist economics is correct. So he's saying, I don't really want to build up a consumer-driven economy. I want to build up a Marxist economy. And so it's this, it's this um, I think, not well understood that these big consumer-driven reforms are just not in the cards well, well anytime soon. Um, the last risk that's really important to keep in mind is geopolitical. And I mentioned this before, but the tail risks of a Taiwan crisis, some kind of contingency are there. And I'd say the tail risks are, are rising. And so, um, it, you know, a, a um, in addition to all of the kind of general U.S.-China tensions were mentioned, I think that's, that's something that people always have to keep in mind. Is that tail risk rising because the pro-independence groups are potentially going to win the election in eight weeks? Or is it because something else happening? Like, or, or some of the commentary I'm hearing is, well, maybe Xi gets who he wants in Taiwan and there's not a real conflict. Well, China's dialing up the pressure. So the Chinese military, at no doubt, at Xi Jinping's um, uh, orders is has been dialing up the pressure. Um, you know, just kind of the incursions, you know, flying over Taiwan, sort of putting military pressure, kind of saber rattling in the Taiwan Strait. So the amount of that they've done um, has increased pretty dramatically in 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 the last year or so. And in some cases, there's been near accidents between U.S. and, and Chinese forces in the region. So, um, you know, accidents can happen. So I think that's why the administration was so keen on restoring military to military dialogue channels so that at least we have a, a, a hope that someone will pick up the phone if, if our Pentagon or, or, you know, calls calls their their Chinese counterparts if there's some kind of an emergency. Um, so it it is really sort of going back to the you know, China views Taiwan as 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 part of 
of China and part of Xi Jinping's vision for eventual national rejuvenation, where he wants to get China, uh, you know, bringing bringing Taiwan, annexing Taiwan back, basically is part of that vision. We've talked a lot about China. Uh, as, as you think about the broader mission of SCSP, what else uh, are you all focused on? And is there other things that either risks or opportunities that investors should be thinking about? And we can talk a little bit about how people can get involved, how you can help, what what yeah, thank you. No, um, we would love for your listeners to check us out, SESP.ai. We do a sub stack, so we publish a lot of reports. You can follow us if you sign up for our sub stack or follow us on socials. Uh, a couple of months ago, we put out a report on generative AI. So we're really excited that U.S. firms are really in the lead here. Um, it shows that we're still doing a lot of innovation, and we think this is really important for this overall national competition that we're in with China over technology. Uh, we also just published a major report on advanced compute and microelectronics, which is a mouthful, but this gets into semiconductors and things like um you know, is the United States in a position to remain the computing and semiconductor uh, powerhouse that we have been all the way since the Cold War, when um, the Defense Department invested in the Apollo program, the original moonshot, that was really the Pentagon investing in national competitiveness, and it led to Silicon Valley. It led to the creation of the semiconductor industry, which is now, of course, you know, a massive hundreds of billions of dollar global industry where the U.S. is leading. But I think our leadership is in question in some areas. So we take a long term view and point to some big moves, some moonshots that we think the U.S. should make, as well as some kind of near term things we need to do to kind of batten down the hatches. So uh, check that out if you're interested in semiconductors. If you're interested in if your listeners are interested in AI, we have a lot of other things on there. We've written about TikTok. We've written about, you know, Chinese data regulations. We've written about U.S., EU uh, digital issues, kind of the whole we've written about AI governance, uh, defense issues, all kinds of things. So check us out. No, I mean, this is I, I think we've been talking on Behind the Markets all about the Fed, all about central banks, all about inflation for the last 24 months. And I feel like the conversation is shifting to all about geopolitics. And, you know, that's going to be, I think, the dominating themes for, because the Fed is sort of, in our view, behind behind us. Inflation's coming down, Fed's going to be lowering rates in our view next year, and that's not going to be the major issue. The big risk is what you're talking about right here on the show. So we appreciate you coming into our SiriusXM headquarters. We got Corey in the studio with us. Thanks for coming in off our normal Wharton campus site. Uh, look forward to keeping this conversation with you. Thanks, Jeremy. It was it was great to be here with you today. Thanks, Liza Tobin from SCSP.ai. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.